All right. Good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Totally forgot my clicker. Not cool. All right. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. We are in the third week of On the Brink, where we're going through and looking at the life of David. And not just looking at the nice um, morality tales that are all over David's account, but actually engaging it on a, on a level where we're seeing the work of the gospel that surfaces underneath all that. We talked about how last week um, it's very easy to go to David and Goliath, uh, David and Bathsheba, David as a king, and, and come out with some really great moral accounts and, and life lessons, and th- that it's chock full of it. But that if we reduced it to that, if we reduced even scripture or the Old Testament to that, we would be missing out on the lion's share of what God is doing and the underlying foundational reality of the good news that we see uh, not just in the New Testament from the cross on, but in the Old Testament leading up to what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so on the brink is where we're looking at the good news of God and the crossroad moments of my life. And this week we're talking about how um, oftentimes we are on the brink of being royally unappreciated. If you've worked long enough or if you've been in a relationship long enough, you've recognized that you find yourself being royally unappreciated from time to time. And this is something that's not, this is a human condition, and it's actually something that scripture and, and, and that the Lord speaks into. Today we're going to be looking at how David serves his royally unappreciative boss, and we know that that boss would be uh, King Saul. Um, last week we were in First Samuel 16, and we're going to be in just the last half of that today as we're looking at what it was that was going on in the beginning of David's ministry and service. And, and, and chapter 16 can be broken down. It's, it's actually a total contrast, the, the first half of it and the second half of it. Half of it. So we're going to be looking at that a little bit, but focusing more on what's taking place in the second half. Now, as we're looking at David serving as royally unappreciative boss, he's doing this in both good times and bad. Truth be told, when you first got into a relationship, when you first got into a job, it probably was, you didn't enter into it going, man, this, I hate this job. That's why I accepted it. I just can't stand this person. That's why I'm getting married to her. We wouldn't do that. We get into it and it's like amazing. There is a season of good. And for David, that's taking place. If you look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, let's go ahead and just go to 13. Leading up to this point, just for context, we see that David has been called. Saul, the previous king, has been disqualified. Now, David isn't stepping into the throne just yet, but he's already disqualified, and David has been anointed the future king of Israel. And this is a big deal, because this guy's just a shepherd kid. He's just a kid. He's not the oldest. We talked about all the reasons he should have been himself disqualified, but wasn't. He was qualified by God. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. Okay, just pause real quick here. It's kind of confusing here. Like, why is God sending evil spirits? Why is God sending some, like, demonic presence or something to, to totally just uh, frustrate and annoy Saul? 
And the rea- what we see here, it's, it's tough for, for scholars to really nail that down outside of the fact that we understand that God is ultimately sovereign and in control, which means that he can protect us from all the demonic activity and all the spiritual activity of what Satan, our enemy, wants to do against us. He can protect us. He can shield us. And every moment we take breath in this world, he is. No matter who you are, no matter how far away you are from God, you are experiencing protection from him. However, God also has the sovereign ability to dial that back. And allows Satan to do what Satan will do, which is to, to aim to destroy us. And that's taking place. But God also works through David and, and his ability here. Take a look at what's happening. One, one of Saul's attendants says, verse 17, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks, uh, he speaks well and he's fi- a fine looking man. And the Lord's with him. Verse 19, then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So David took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Verse 22, then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service, for I am what? Pleased with him, very pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. The relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. All right, so this is a season of good. This is like really, really good time, vocationally for David. As far as David's concerned, my boss is totally appreciative of everything's going good. David is seeing himself being used. He's an audio therapist, okay? This is kind of like aromatherapy, but with the harp. I don't get it. I don't understand what the deal is. What, like if, if Saul just dug harp new agey music or something. But he's like, you know what? I, I, what I really need is a harp, a harp player. Because that just, nothing like that just to hit the tranquil moments of my day. But not only that, he's also Homeland Security. This little shepherd kid also, if we, once we get into chapter 17, the next chapter, we see that this kid goes up against the country's number one enemy which is the Philistines, and he takes on their biggest dude in Goliath. We're going to talk about that next week, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But the point is, is that this season of good, David is actually recognizing that the things that he is skilled with, the things that God has put into just the, the hopper of his life, are utilized. He's needed, and he's utilized. Have you ever felt this? Like where you felt like you were doing something, and you were just like, humming on all eight cylinders like this is like it's good like I'm I'm needed and I'm being utilized when I first moved from from Los Angeles to Chicago my dad said son you cannot go to school for free your grades just weren't that good so you're gonna have to work and you have to you know support what you're doing I'm like okay well I got to get a job I'm trying to find a job but every other college student is trying to find a job in downtown Chicago and couldn't find it except for one place. There was this place called Telesite, which was a block away from Moody, uh, the school I went to, Moody Bible Institute. And, uh, and you go in there and you have to like, it's like it's building out of the matrix or something, just kind of like industrial. You have to punch in this code, beep, 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 and then they let you in and you get interviewed and you walk into this like total flat full of 18 to 20 year olds that are just with headsets and making phone calls all across the country. And what, what the com- company did was they worked to um, communicate or to basically follow up if you got your Sears, uh, if you got your car serviced at Sears Automotive or you had your brakes done, we would be the people who would call you up and ask you if you'd be willing to take a survey and that this call may be recorded for quality assurance. And on a scale of one to four, 
We would like to know how satisfied you are. One, extremely dissatisfied. Two, somewhat dissatisfied. Three, somewhat satisfied. Or four, extremely satisfied. And, and if you'd like to make any additional comments. Now, I went into this, and the cool thing was is that this... This cord is bugging me, sorry. Um, the cool thing was is that you just sat there at your computer, and up on the prompt would come wherever you're calling. And so it'd be someplace in Illinois. And then... It'd jump over, and it's, it's someplace in California. I'm like, I know where this is. And then, and then it'd jump on over to the next call. It would be someplace in Alabama. And then I start realizing that when you talk to people from different parts of the country, they talk differently. And I'm like, so I'm, bloop, Mississippi. I'm like, dude, I got this. And I would talk with a Mississippian accent, and I would just totally rock it. Hope, just kind of like waiting to see how long it would take for them to realize I'm a total fake, you know, <laughs> and, and, it was, and I, I was knocking it out of the park. We were just like, I, I was making more phone calls, accomplishing more surveys. And the thing about this job was we were hired at a higher rate than anyone else's minimum wage. It was just like, you, you came in at a really high level and they said within three months, if you continue working here, you're going to go ahead and rise right on up and you'll get an even higher raise. And I'm thinking this ministry, I'm going to just like work at this place. This is so lucrative. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. Around the same time in college, I started dating Julie. And this was a season of good. Because like when you first date someone, you're just like, I mean, you're just, you're flawless. And, and Julie saw me as flawless, as in without flaw. And it was so good. And I was just like, every day, and I was, and to be honest, there was good reason for her to feel this way because I was at the time. I, I thought about her all the time. I was writing her. I would like get like um, this carton that was trash and I'd make it into something that I could tack onto her dorm room walls. So when she came down uh, the elevator and sees this, she would say, look, I have a boyfriend who takes trash. And he gives it to me. And, and that would be something that she would just make her day. And I, it's like every moment of the day, this was a season of good. Until it wasn't. Let's talk about the season of bad. There's also the season of bad. In David's life, in David's ministry, in David's service, we see the season of bad in chapter 18 and 19. In chapter 18 and 19, all of a sudden, David is doing so good that Saul takes notice of it. And in chapter 18, you have Saul bemoaning the fact that people are writing music about David. So it used to be all about him. Man, he's just so tall. He's so attractive. Blah, blah, blah. We finally have a king. And now they're talking about this ridiculous shepherd kid who Saul was gracious enough to even allow in his presence. And now he's getting the praise? He's getting the accolade? Yeah, okay. So he took on, on our, our number one enemy when I wasn't willing to. But so what? I was the one who led that. I made the final call. It wasn't David. He comes in here and he makes me feel better with his stupid musical instruments. So he's a musician. He's not a king. Why is it that people are giving him the praise? And so all of a sudden, in the season of bad, we see Saul's jealousy surface. But it wasn't just jealousy. The workplace environment for David got really, really sketchy because it led to Saul's hostility, where he was, out of his jealousy, trying to do anything he could to dismantle David's personhood, not only his reputation, but, but who he is. Um, we see in chapter 18, Saul's jealousy for David leading to the point where Saul's actually willing to say, I don't know what to do with this kid. The best thing I could do is eliminate him from the equation. And he puts him out into battle. I, I, need, to, I need to just figure out a way to get him out of the equation. So he puts him into battle, hoping that that is going to eliminate him as a threat. When we get into to verse 19 or chapter 19, we see this continue on. 
And David, again, he's continuing to serve Saul. He's conti- when Saul's having a bad mood, the servant's sent for David. David comes in with his harp. Even though this guy's now a national hero, he's coming in and playing the harp for, for his messed up boss. And we see this in verse 9 of chapter 19. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. By the way, if you're ever working for someone and they just are in, you know, they're your boss and they just like carry a weapon, not a great environment. While David was playing the harp, verse 10, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape which was a really good, good plan for David. Now, the season of bad is something that we also can resonate with and relate to. I mean, just because it started epic for David, it wasn't going to last. No, no vocational bliss lasts. No relational bliss lasts. I mean, the truth be told, uh, the, 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 that everything that we, we, whenever we're getting into that job, if, we, if that's our perspective, we're setting ourselves up for a royal disappointment. Telesite had, um, as, um, as amazing as the paycheck was, they had a three-strike policy for these 18 to 19, 20-year-olds, all of us working with these headsets on. And it was basically, if you have three, if for any reason, if there's any three strikes infraction, you're out, which sounded totally fair. Um, I came in 45 seconds late um, from, uh, from a break, and I know it was 45 seconds because we logged into our computer when we came off of a break, and because it was 45 seconds late, um, I got my first strike, and they said, um, I'm sorry, Mr. McFadden, you have your first strike. I'm like, oh, I was, but I, I was just talking to a homeless guy out here, he was just right outside your door, and like, yeah, I said, but it's, it's one strike, and I'm like, all right, you know, it's one strike, I got two more, come on, I mean, I'll just be more diligent on my time. Uh, a month later... Um, I, I was sick, and I'm trying to call this company, which is a telecommunications company. I'm making a phone call to call this telecommunications company and say, hey, I can't come in today because I'm sick, and I can't get anyone on the phone. And, and I'm calling and calling, and no one. There's no voicemail. There's no live person. So I come into work the next day. I'm like, hey, I tried to call in, but no one picked up the phone. There was no voicemail. I said, yeah, I'm sorry. Strike two. All right. And then two months after that, right when I'm about to get my new raise, like this, you know, at three months you get your raise. Right before I'm getting my new raise, I hit strike three when I was held hostage. And it's a longer story, I don't want to get into it. But I'm held hostage and I'm at the police station trying to explain that whole situation. And I'm telling someone at Moody, you need to walk over to Telesite and tell them, Errol was held hostage today. He's at the police station. Maybe give him a pass. And I walk into work next, the next day. I go down to my, to my cubicle. I put on my headset. I'm trying to log into my computer. And I'm trying to log into my computer. And I'm trying to log into my computer and nothing's happening. And all of a sudden, everyone kind of just gave me that look. Everyone just looked at me as the managers walked down the aisle. And I, everyone knew what this meant. This meant that somebody in your row got the three strikes, which happened all the time. And walked on over and they said, we're sorry to let you know that um, your services here are no longer welcome. You've hit your three strikes. I'm like, yeah, but I was held hostage. Come on. And all of a sudden, I had an opportunity to contest this. And I realized, I don't want to work for these people anymore. This is awful. All of a sudden, I went from a season of amazing good to a season of bad. With Julie, 
we, we get married. And again, right up to just about when we got married, everything was just like amazing. And again, I'm, I'm so dutiful and, and thinking of her all the time. And, and again, she's thinking, this guy is phenomenal until we got married. And then she realized, <laughs> no. <laughs> and one of the things that happened with me was I went from being someone who was, was just all about Julie to becoming, to taking a, a card from my own family line and becoming a workaholic. And I, I threw myself into work here at this church. And it went from, I'm thinking that Julie would completely understand that. I mean, this, come on, this is totally, this, number one, it's my job. Number two, this is ministry. Why, why are you not, come on. And I remember Julie saying for the first of many times, many times in our relationship, you don't understand how alone you make me feel. Every relationship, every vocation, every one of them is going to lead to a season of bad. And as a culture, we have an appropriate and healthy way to respond. It's through Facebook memes. If you take a look, you can find them all over the place. One of these days, uh, one, of the, uh, one of these days where I've had beyond enough, fed up with being unappreciated. Now you can just say that or just post that, but it's so much prettier if you have a meme. If they don't appreciate you, they don't deserve you. When you're always there for people, they stop appreciating you because your favors are now an expectation. Oh, my bad. I'm sorry for bothering you. I forgot I only exist when you need me for something. People never remember the millions of times you help them. Only the one time you don't. There comes a time when you have to stop crossing oceans for people who wouldn't even jump in puddles for you. Life is too short to waste a single second with anyone who doesn't appreciate you. Now, all of these we can resonate with on some, in some degree. But there's a barb in each one of them, isn't there? It's painful. The reason it's painful is because um, as realistic as that is, as much of a reality as that is, it reflects reality out there, but there's a better reality. See, that reality dictates for us this oppressive um, plan of action that I'm going to do everything in my life to find appreciation to find that, that, that absolute um, ability to qualify and justify my life. And this job isn't doing it, so I'm going to get another job because that job will. Or this relationship isn't doing it, so I'm going to just bail on this relationship and get into that. And what we end up doing is we end up running from job to job, from relationship to relationship, from church to church, trying to find the one that is that, that emotional, healthy place that will feed us. That's reality, but there's a better reality. And the better reality is the gospel. See, what the gospel says is this. The gospel says that God operates incredibly unfair to us. Again, as we said last week, instead of giving us distance, he gave us relationship. Instead of giving us judgment and wrath, which we deserve, he gives us acceptance through his son on the cross. That's the gospel. And that enters into the equation and gives us a, a, a reality that infuses even the way that we engage a completely unappreciative environment. And so we're going to be taking a look at how the gospel frees us to do just that. And the first way uh, the gospel frees us is that we are freed to work from a better platform. The, the reason that we're free to serve an environment of unappreciation is that because we're free to work from a better platform than that previous platform that, that's kind of our default human self. We're, we have identity and worth in how others see me, or I'm going to have identity and worth in how God sees me. 
And, and the truth is, is that that's going to be the better platform. In, in this passage, in chapter 16, again, we talked about how it's broken up into two parts. The first part is talking about the calling of David. And then ultimately, it gets to 13 where God puts his anointing on David. The last part is when Saul calls David into his, into his service. And it's a total difference. And, and one of the key ways that the, the chapter is broken into two, you look back at 16, is this word right here, Salah. It's actually Salah or Shalah. One, one part of this passage in, in verse 13 pronounces it Salah. The second part of, uh, in verse 19 pronounces that same, the same spelling of word Shalah. And the word means two radically different things. One means to seize and the other one means to send or, or sent. So one is like totally like, like think about a linebacker just seizing someone. There's no holding back. They're totally laid flat. And the other one is sending for someone. If you take a look at verse 13, it says this. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord seized David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. And then if you look in verse 19, we get the opposite side of that same spelling of word, but totally different meaning. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse saying, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. David's vocation, he's got someone who sends for him. He's sent for that. That's kind of like what he does. But he's going into that situation already seized by God. Our problem as people is oftentimes we look at vocation and relationship as the thing that seizes us. This totally encompasses me. This is all who I am. And if that is the reality, if our marriage or our boyfriend or our girlfriend or our fiance or our work, if that's what is all encompassing for us, we will find ourselves making that our functional savior rather than, no, I'm sent, uh, that, that dictates a lot of decisions in my life, this relationship, this job, but I'm coming into the equation already seized, already seized by God. If we do not engage our job or relationship from a standpoint of already being completed by Christ, we will attempt to use every job and every relationship to complete us. And that distorts relationships. All of a sudden, um, we're using people and we're using jobs to give us worth and dignity. When we come into the equation already there. This is why Colossians 3.23 says what it says. When it says that as a people, whatever you're doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people. Engage your job with the best that you're bringing to it because you're serving God, not comment. You're serving God, not the the spouse that you're a stay-at-home mom or dad for. You're serving God instead because you know that you'll receive your inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Serve the Lord Christ. You look all throughout scripture and you see, and especially with Jesus' words, he is trying to scrub out the idolatry we have that places the importance and value and dignity of our life in our vocation. Even, even in our righteousness, in Matthew 6, 1, he says, be careful to, not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. Our ultimate, ultimate calling comes from a place of identity in who Jesus is is and what he's done for us, that spews in and spreads in to everything else. Now, not only that, not only are we freed to have, uh, to be able to engage things from a better platform, but we're also freed to have a realistic expectation of humanity. We're freed to have a realistic, realistic expectation of humanity. Again, if we, we, we take a look at um, any type of emotional response to the brokenness and frustration we see in this world, we could see it on Facebook, which says, I'm never shocked when people let me down nowadays. I just hate the fact that I put myself in a position to be let down in the first place. 
Now, you could take this in two different ways. If we're going to exegete our culture, if we're going to look at our culture and, and try to understand it, see the truth in it, this, this is an incredibly bold and accurate statement in saying that we set ourselves up for massive disappointment by putting our hope in people, things, or positions. Again, that is a recipe for, for ultimate disappointment. However, however, if we engage, if we're impacted by the gospel, all of a sudden we, we are not blindsided by people's failures or the way that they disappoint us. Truth is, because we live in a broken world where everybody, including ourselves, rebel against the way we were created to live and from the creator himself, we shouldn't be shocked when we are regularly frustrated with our boss, our spouse, or our environment, even when we're working exactly where we should work, married to whom we're supposed to be married to, and living where we're supposed to live. See, the gospel has an incredibly honest um, approach to humanity. The fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all of us are broken. And so that's not the shocker. Uh, The truth is that because of the gospel, we have the ability to see man as fallen, but worthy because God's made him worthy. We're able, to, 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 we're able to both not be blindsided when our boss doesn't appreciate us, when our spouse doesn't appreciate us. We're not blindsided by that because we realize that these people are bro- in a, living in a broken world just like us. These people rebel away from God's function and design just like us. So I'm not blindsided by that, number one. But secondly, secondly, I'm able to respond to them in grace I wouldn't have otherwise because I know what the gospel does in me. I know the fact that God has met me in my disparity and my, my dysfunction, and he's, and he's met me with grace. And so when somebody has that, I no longer have a, a false view of humanity that, that there's always going to be health. There's always going to be the right perspective. There's always going to be justice. I know that oftentimes that whenever there is that, it will break apart on its own. And so I respond not by being blindsided, but, but responding with, with love. We are freed to have a realistic expectation of humanity. Thirdly, we're also freed to challenge unideal conditions by living and leading in stark contrast. See, the, the cool thing is, is that as much as we can affirm the truth that the unhealthy authority figures in our life can negatively shape our future, not only in the damage caused in us, but also in the damage we in turn inflict upon others. Not only can we say, okay, I grew up in a, in a situation with my mom and my dad, and they gave me a bad set of cards to, deal, to play with. And I'm, I'm finding myself playing these bad set of cards in my relationship with my spouse. Or I, I, I'm in a work environment, and the people that I've worked for have always had this unhealthy approach or have been totally unappreciative. And, and I can actually live in that reality. And then ultimately, when I'm in leadership, delve that out to the people underneath me. Or I could say, no, I'm going I'm to live and lead in stark contrast. Just because my parents responded this way relationally does not mean I have to. Just because my boss responded in this way vocationally does not mean that I have to reflect that to the people that ultimately I'll be over. And we see David making an epic fail with this. Because again, what does Saul do outside of trying to pin him to the wall? What is what the first thing Saul does to try to eliminate David from the equation? What does he do in, in chapter 18? Hmm? Sends him off to war. He, puts him, he tries to give him more responsibility than, than this little kid could possibly manage and puts him in a situation where his life will most likely be taken. When David is in authority, and David's got this really precarious situation with Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and he wants to eliminate him from the equation, what does he do? The exact 
same thing. How many of us are living out unhealth because we saw it modeled relationally or vocationally? How many, how many of us are doing that? We hated it when we were growing up. Or we hated it when we were in that one job. And we're finding ourselves re, re, repeating that same notion with others. The gospel says that that's not, that doesn't have to be the reality. That we can actually live and lead in stark contrast because the gospel is a better word than even our past or the chains that we have from this is the way it's always been done. David does an amazing, he, he showcases this reality in 1 Samuel 24. When even though his boss is, is, is responding to him in hate and hostility, he, he totally does the exact opposite. See, because a lot of people would see chapter 16 and 17 and David's service to Saul in, the, in, these, in these situations and, and chapter 19 as, as, well, yeah, but that's what David's doing because he's the, the guy who's the, the, the bottom of the totem pole. He's the guy who, who's the, the, getting the short end of the stick. He's the guy who's not in power. If he was in power, if he had any type of ability to take out Saul or, you know, go against, rail against Saul, he totally would. No, he wouldn't. When we get to chapter 24, we see David in a situation where he understands that he is God's anointed. He understands he is God's chosen one. He is the future king. And all the people that are close to him are saying, kill Saul. And all of a sudden, he comes across Saul in a cave. And he could totally take him out. He could totally kill him. And that's actually what he's going into the cave to do. And he doesn't. He takes his knife. And he cuts off an edge of his robe. And what a lot of people believe is the part of of his robe that he cut off was where the tassels from the prayer shawl are. And and the tassels of the prayer shawl that every Hebrew man would would wear around his neck, people wrapped those because it represented the law of God. And they wrapped their fingers around because they said, the tassels, this is where the life is. My life in God is, is in the law of God. And what David does is he cuts one of those off. And then he calls out to Saul, and Saul comes out of the cave, and he says, Do you see, why are you doing this? And he calls him Father. He says, Father, why are you doing this to me? I could have had your life. I could have taken your life, and I didn't. I could have, I could have given you exactly what you've been given to me. I, I could have repaid it straight up, and I would have been justified, and I would have been praised for it, but I didn't. See, the good news of God is that when, when we recognize who God is and who we are in him, that causes us to say, no, there's a stark contrast in how I'm going to roll out from here. Not only are we free to work from a better platform, we're free to, to have a realistic expectation of humanity. We're free to challenge unideal conditions by living and leading in stark contrast. We're also freed to identify with our Savior. You may feel incredibly stuck right now. And there's nothing again. I mean, you've got a lame job and you can get a better job. Great, go for it. You're, you're dating someone and things are just getting really, really sideways and, and messed up. By all means, I mean, seek some wisdom and find a better situation. But many of us don't feel like that in-between opportunity. Instead, we kind of feel we're, we're kind of stuck. What then? Truth is, is that we are free to identify with our Savior even in these disappointing moments where we're not feeling the health that we should be receiving. And we're, we get to see the stark contrast even from David to our Savior. See, David was notably skilled and attractive, but the prophet Isaiah, when talking about the future Messiah Jesus, said there's nothing in Jesus' appearance that, should, that would attract people. We see that David, was progressively David progressively experienced acclaim and significance. 
See, but we can identify with our Savior because we are someone who understands that Jesus was progressively disrespected, despised, and ultimately considered insignificant, Isaiah 53.3. We understand that David was a mistreated servant, certainly, but our Savior Jesus was the suffering servant. That David eluded death and avoided being pinned to a wall. And that may not be our story, but if it's not our story, we can identify with our Savior, Jesus, who willingly died by being pinned to a cross. You're suffering right now. You are not alone in that. And you have a Savior who suffered as well. We see the same Savior say this, I've told you these things, so that in me you'll have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Our calling as a people is not necessarily to always have the happiest of jobs or even the happiest of relationships. We live in a broken world where that will be constantly, constantly attacked. But as people who've been marked by the gospel, we do have the freedom to thrive and serve in an environment that's not appreciative, that's not valuing of who we are, and we can still find the peace of Christ in the midst of it. I want to pray for you, and I'd love to pray that all of you have just, just epic weeks in your vocations or epic weeks in a relationship or whatever. But I know that that's going to not happen for many of you. So instead, I'd like to pray something else. Instead, I would like to pray for you that in your job or in your relationship or in, in, in your role as a student, that you're able to see Jesus there. And that the people around you in those relationships, in your workplace, will see Jesus inside of you. Let's stand for prayer. Lord God, we... we it's so difficult, Lord, in this world to find satisfaction that's, that lasts. And we know that because this world is just off the rails in so many ways. And oftentimes we're off the rails, God. We, just to be completely honest, it's us. And Lord, I pray that you just infuse into the lives of everyone here a different perspective, one that's not marked by happiness built and based on circumstance or condition, but one that's built and based on the gospel, which is the good news that enters in any situation, in any circumstance, and produces a life that looks more and more like you, Jesus. The peace that comes from you, the strength that comes from you. And God, as that happens, may the world around us see Jesus through us. We'll give you the thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's go live it.